So in order to understand scripture week to week, what we do is we dive into the text itself. So we're looking at words, and we're looking at what those words mean in their original language. And then we see how does this author use this word throughout the rest of his gospel? What are the contexts of that? And then we back up and we look at what's the historical context? What was happening in the world around him? What was happening in the Roman Empire? Sometimes we look at the cultural context, you know, what was going on? Uh, we, we look at all these different facets of the text, and we want to do that because we want to be good students of the text. We want to get a good feel for what's happening there. Um, have you ever heard of this right here? This game? Go to the first, first slide there. It says, every text without a context is a pretext. Have you ever heard somebody say that before? And that's is what it's saying is if you take a text of Scripture specifically and you don't actually look at the context of it, then you're starting with these presumptions about what the author's talking about, what he meant, what, what he's alluding to, and the danger is you start applying it to your life without really knowing if that's even what he intended or not. And this is where we get all these rabbit trails of people who are misappropriating texts, sometimes for their own purposes, or sometimes just trying to be devout Christians, but yet they're doing all these things that the text really never requires them to do. So one thing I believe that we do well here at Mars Hill is that we break the text down to say, what did the author mean when he said this? What was happening before chapter one, chapter two, chapter three? What was happening before we get to this text? What's coming after this? What was happening in the world around it? And we do a good job with that. But we also have to remember that John, he has intentions himself. So he's writing these words and these stories, and he's not just calculating his you know, top 10 of Jesus' ministry. He's literally telling stories within stories. So every story he tells relates to bigger stories. So we've seen how he's relating back to creation. He's relating back to the Passover. And you're going to see today that he's going to relate back to the wilderness and the wanderings, which we've actually seen in the previous passage when Jesus fed the 5,000 there on, on the mountainside. So that's the technical aspect of the text. But I also want us to remember that there is an experiential part of the text too. I'm going to give you two big words here, okay? Exegesis. You ever heard of that before? So that first thing that I talked about is exegesis. Exegesis is when you break that passage down into its most basic elements and you try and figure out what the true intentions of the passage are. What did the author intend for it to mean? And looking at everything around it. But there's another word that goes right along with exegesis and you can't have good exegesis without this one and you can't have this one without good exegesis. And that word is hermeneutics. You're probably thinking, Herman who? But as hermeneutics is a word that literally means to apply the text to your own situation. Now, what happens a lot of times in churches is we do hermeneutics without exegesis. And what happens is we read the passage and go, oh, that's something I can claim, so I'm going to claim that and I'm going to stand on it. But because we didn't do the exegesis, we're applying that passage in the wrong way. And then the other sad reality is we can go to a church where someone does great exegesis but then there's never any application. There's never like, what is my life got to be different tomorrow? How do I act different? How do I see God differently? How do I see myself differently because of this text? And so when we study the word of God, it has to be living and active. And for it to be both of those things, you have to have both the context and what is, and I'm going to call instead of the word hermeneutics because that's a weird word, I'm going to use the term flavor. Have you ever had food that had zero flavor? Have you ever had that before? Here's the thing. The food was probably still healthy, but you didn't engage with the food, did you? Now, how many of y'all, you eat food that's very flavorful, 
but it has zero nutritional value, okay? Can we say Little Debbie's, all right? Yeah, I mean, you can, you can go through a carton of those fudge rounds, can't you? Yeah, you know, fudge rounds, I mean, 12 of them in two minutes. It has no good, but when you, have, when you merge those two together, have you ever had somebody who knew what they were doing with a grill and they gave you a filet and that filet, you didn't even need a knife really to cut it. You could just kind of put your fork in there and pull it apart. And when you smelled it, your mouth would water. And you knew this was not something you would be offending the guy if you put Heinz 57 on this. Because there's nothing to cover up with Heinz 57. That's what Heinz 57 is for, is covering up a bad steak job, right? So when you have this, it would be offensive to put anything else on it. Because when you put it in your mouth, it's like <clears throat> your whole body begins to engage with it. Your mouth begins to water <clears throat> as your teeth kind of go through the meat. And it's just so tender and moist. Your stomach just can't wait to get some of it down there. And I mean, it's this whole experience. It's this flavor. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever been able to interact with food in that way before? So this is what the text is supposed to be. When it says that God's word is living and active, it's not something that we study from afar. It's not something we study just to get this mental picture or this mental ascent to who God is. It's something that both we understand from this mental perspective, but it has flavor to it. It's something that engages with us, that when we really begin to get down to what it means, we begin to reflect on how to live our lives differently. And that's what John wants us to do. He wants us to get the technical aspects of this because he's dropping words in there that should remind us of other things. And when it reminds us of those other things, he wants us to embrace those stories. He wants us to get into the experiential aspects of what he's talking about there. You see, we are always in danger of understanding the passage without entering the passage. But what I want to challenge you to do is to enter it to experience, to feel it, to experience the flavor of the text. And the first thing that should jump out at us, especially if you haven't, if it hasn't already jumped out at you in previous texts that we've already been studying, is that the crowd that has been following Jesus, even some of his own disciples, are not interested in a savior who is primarily spiritual. They want a savior that is primarily physical. They want someone to run off the Roman Empire. They want someone to establish seats, thrones that they can sit in, his disciples, and so that they can rule over the people. They want a kingdom established in the promised land, a physical presence of people in the physical promised land. That's what they're looking for. They want a physical savior, but Jesus keeps telling them, that's not your problem. You're only looking at a short part of life, a short part of who you are. The bigger part of who you are is the spiritual. That's what I've come to redeem. That's what I've come to fix. But they can't see it. And every time he tries to talk to them from that spiritual perspective, they miss it because they keep thinking from a physical perspective. So this whole episode, which really goes all the way down to verse 52, 53 there at the end of the text, it begins to draw a distinction and it begins to separate those who are open to believing in Jesus 
and those who are not open to believing in Jesus. And what happens as you get further and further, the chasm gets wider and wider. And those who are opposed to him and will not even consider it, the animosity grows. And those who are open to it, they become very conflicted because they see, they're honest with what they see and what they've experienced and what they've heard. And yet they know that if they embrace this, that they have alienated themselves from their kinsmen or maybe even from their own family. And so there is this this division even within them of trying to figure out the conflicting feelings that they're going through. And so it's going to get very interesting here in the next couple of weeks as we work through this encounter that Jesus has during this Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, that's the way he opens it up. He tells us this is the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, John chapter 7, really 1 through 52, that whole section there is really the entirety of the passage. But we don't have time to look through all 52 of those verses in one Sunday. So we're going to have to break it down into bite-sized text. Today, we're only going to look at the first 13 verses here because the first 13 verses, I believe, set the tone or begin to give us the flavor of this passage, really begin to help us to connect and to feel what's happening there. Now, if you just read it and you pass over it, you miss it. But if you look at the little details that John has given to us here, you embrace it. You can feel this passage, all right? The previous passage that we studied, it was where Jesus was, um, he claimed to be the bread of life. Do y'all remember that? A couple of weeks back where Jesus had just fed the 5,000 and now all of a sudden he wanted to retreat and get away with his disciples, but the people followed him. As they followed him, he reminded them that the only reason they're following him is not because they believe that he's the Messiah. They're only following him because they want their bellies filled again. They are literally following a physical savior. We want you to keep doing these great things. We want you to keep feeding us miraculously. And he tells them that no matter what you think, here's really what your motivations are. And then he reveals himself as the bread of life. Now keep that in mind because as you get into the Feast of Tabernacles, we already talked about how the bread was representative of when they were in the wilderness and God fed them with manna from heaven. But another miraculous thing that God did for them is that he fed them or he gave them water in miraculous ways as well. And so the deeper they get into the wilderness, the more miraculous things become. So he rescues them from Egypt where they were slaves. He takes them into this dark wilderness, this deep wilderness where there is no food, there's no vegetation, there's no way to keep crops, there's no way to uh, take care of herds and grow them. So they become more and more dependent on God the deeper they get into the wilderness. And they end up walking around this place for 40 years. I mean, this is not a life-sustaining place, and yet they exist for 40 years there. How? Because God miraculously provides. Now, if you pay attention in the Old Testament, what you find is the very nuances of how God refers to those things when he talks to Moses and talks to the people. Um, He always refers to Egypt as Pharaoh's land. And he always refers to the land, the promised land, as the land I'm giving you. But here's what's amazing, is he always refers to the wilderness as my land. God calls the wretched place that can't produce anything my land. Now, why in the world would God call that my land? Here's why. The deeper they got into there, the more they had to depend on him. 
And the more they grew in relationship with each other, the more they had to trust him. Now, does that mean they weren't going to bicker and argue and, and doubt him? No, we see that over and over again because they're still who they are no matter what environment you put them in. But it's like God loves that experience when we look to him for our needs to be met, when we understand that without him, we are nothing, that literally he's the one who feeds us. He knew that when they got into the promised land, it wouldn't be long before their hearts would turn to where their stomachs pointed them and that they would begin to drift further and further away from him. So before they ever got there, God spoke to Moses, told him to write down this book. The book is called Leviticus. In the 23rd chapter of the book of Leviticus, God tells them that when you get into this land, here are things that you're going to do every year. And he tells them about these seven feasts. He said, these are my feasts. These are the feasts of the Lord. And every year you will celebrate these. And he tells them very specifically, on the 10th day of the first month, you're going to do this. And of course, we know those seven feasts. They're very familiar to you most, most likely, especially if you've been at Mars Hill for a while. You've heard us teach them, even participate in some of them. Passover is the first one, right? That's when he rescued them out of Egypt. Then the next one is unleavened bread. And remember, they escaped Egypt so fast, they didn't have time for the bread to rise. So they celebrate unleavened bread in connection with Passover. Then it's the feast of first fruits. When you get into the land and you begin to harvest the crops that are going to be so bountiful before you ever take any of them, make sure you take the most choice of them. You cut them and you bring them to the temple and you wave them before the Lord. And he told them exactly how to do it. Wave it in this way, back and forth, back and forth as a reminder that God has given to you and you should return back to God in acknowledgement of where your goodness comes from. And so they were to remind themselves, that the goodness of the land that is provided, that's something God had given to them. And then you have this 50-day period. It's actually called the Omer. Omer means measure, and a measure is a day. So there's 50 days that happen from the time of first fruits till Pentecost, okay? And literally Pentecost is 50, so it's 50 days. Pentecost is the wheat harvest, whereas um, Passover is the barley harvest. So you have the wheat harvest out there in the summertime, and that's the only summer feast. So you have three spring, one summer, and there's nothing that happens again until you get to the fall. Now, the first of the fall feasts is actually the Jewish New Year. Like we celebrate January 1st, they celebrate what is called Rosh Hashanah. Now, you may say Rosh Hashanah, and that's okay if you want to say it that way, but it's actually pronounced Rosh Hashanah, and um, that is the head of the year. Okay, that's what it literally means. And this is where they blow the trumpets and they announce this and they have this very reflective time as they enter into a new year. They think about what did I do wrong this past year and how can I make commitments to be closer to God this next year? And then there are 10 days and the 10 days lead up to, the 10 days of awe lead up to the day of atonement. Now in the old days, that's when the priest would literally walk into the Holy of Holies with a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, and he would apply it to the mercy seat. And that would provide a forgiveness of the people of Israel of their sins for one year, every year. This is the only time the high priest ever went into the Holy of Holies, only time he was ever invited, the only time he would ever utter out loud the holy name of God. And in this whole ceremony, he would walk in and out of the Holy of Holies three times in this process. Okay? Then after the Day of Atonement comes 
the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, at the Feast of Tabernacles, this is a very joyous occasion. It's the last one. It's the seventh feast. And so it's representative of when they were wandering in the wilderness, and they all lived in these tents. Because, remember, they were just nomadic people. They were wandering around for 40 years. So they would literally, when God would lead them, he led them by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. So when the cloud started moving, they would just get their stuff together, and they would follow that cloud until it stopped, and they would set up camp again. And so every year what they would do during the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles is they will connect this temporary dwelling to their house and they live in it for a week. Now, here what will blow your mind. So as Neil was reading that, did you see that this is the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles? Guess what starts tonight in Israel? Passover. No, I'm just kidding. It's Feast of Tabernacles. It literally starts tonight. It starts at sundown tonight. So we're studying this passage literally at the same time of year that Jesus, when he was in Jerusalem, began to experience this holy week, okay? Now, as he goes in there, you have to understand this, this, this um, theme. Uh, number one, let's just talk for a moment, just a brief moment. We don't have time to really get deep into it. But the seven feasts are powerful simply because they remind Israel of their history, that they were freed as slaves from Egypt, that God freed them so quickly that bread didn't have time to rise, that he promised them they were gonna go into this land. And matter of fact, when you get there, you will harvest the choices of the grains and you will provide them to me and remind yourself that I'm the one who has provided for you. Um, Pentecost is about not only wheat, I'm not only uh, barley, but also the wheat harvest. And then you have Yom Kippur, you have um, the the Feast of Trumpets, you also have uh, the tabernacles. So when they get there, this picture is God's goodness to them to bring them from being slaves in Egypt to having their own land in the promised land where God provides like you couldn't believe, okay? Now think about this for a moment. Not only does it refer to their past, but it also reminds them of what God promised them through a savior. Did you know that Jesus literally enters into Jerusalem on lamb selection day? Jesus literally dies on the cross at the same exact time that the Passover lamb would have been sacrificed for the people of Israel, the the one that represents all of them by the high priest, okay? Jesus was literally put into the ground burial on the day of unleavened bread. Jesus literally rises from the dead the morning of, the dawn of, the feast of first fruits. Whenever you take the choicest of the grain and it reminds you that the rest of the harvest is coming after it, okay? Then literally 50 days after Jesus rises from the dead, what happens? the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. So all of the things that Jesus did, the gospels tell us that God did it exactly on his timeline indicated in Leviticus 23. And so the fall feasts are the ones that have not happened yet. They're the ones that are still yet to be fully fulfilled. They all represent something that God promised, but yet has not, we haven't experienced it to its fullness yet. Think about the first one. The blowing of the trumpets. What does Paul say? He said, one day Jesus is going to return and you're going to hear these trumpets blowing. It's announcing there's something new coming. It's initiating something new. And then what do we do? What do we know when Jesus comes back? He is going to rule and reign. And at the end of that rule and reign, he's going to judge the quick and the fast and the dead. And there's going to be a separation of the sheep and the goats. And there's going to be the righteous and the unrighteous, the day of atonement. And then at the end of that judgment, those who are found righteous, 
will enter into the kingdom of God and dwell with him forever, the Feast of Tabernacles. And we will be with him forever and ever and ever. And God will dwell with his people and his people will dwell with him. Do you see how not only does it remind them of their history, but it also reminds them of what their Savior is going to do. But not only this, think about this. It also reminds you of your own spiritual journey. Think about the fact that you become a Christian when you accept Jesus as your Passover lamb, when you believe that he died for your sins, and you accept that free, give, uh, that free gift of grace, the forgiveness of your sins. And unleavened bread is when God begins to separate us from the world. We experience literally a resurrection with Christ. We are buried with Christ in baptism unto death, raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. There's the picture of resurrection and the feast of first fruits. Then what happens after we're saved? The Lord tells us that we receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit dwells inside of us. He's a counselor. He's one, he's an advocate for us. He is one who convicts us whenever we sin. He draws us to things that are holy and righteous and good. And then we all live for the day when God does something new in us. He's already started it, but there's gonna be an even more perfect day in the future. We know that we don't have to fear judgment because Jesus is our perfect high priest. And we look forward to the day when we will dwell with him forever. So not only is it historical, not only is it tell us about Jesus' ministry and what he accomplished. It tells us about our own spiritual journey. And so whenever you get to a text like this, and he says, it's the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles, you begin to sense that flavor of the passage. You begin to remember, you know, what was Tabernacles like? What does it look like? What is the picture that's being developed by John? Well, let's look at verse one there, and let's begin to taste and see. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, notice it starts with the Jews are seeking to kill him. Now, he uses the term Jews there, and John always uses this term in representative of those who did not accept Jesus. Now, this is not anti-Semitic, okay? John is a Jew, so he's not using anti-Semitic language. What he wants us to understand is what he already showed us very clearly in chapter one, is that he came into his own and his own did what? They did not receive him. So he's just showing that over and over again, how this is his own people and he was not accepted by his own. So it was the religious leaders who ultimately wanted to kill Jesus. And this was one reason that he intentionally remains very covert throughout the whole gospel of John using terms like, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come. And then when he goes up for Passover for the last time and he knows that he's gonna be betrayed and he knows that he's gonna be arrested and he knows he's gonna die, he says, my time has come for the son of man to be glorified. And he knew that that was his time. That's, he knew that's what he came for. Now look at verse two of chapter seven. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So to grasp the flavor here, we have to understand what he means by this. What does it mean to be a part of the feast of booths or the feast of tabernacles? Well, number one, we have to understand this is a harvest feast. Just like Passover is the harvest of barley, Pentecost is the harvest of wheat, 
So Sukkot is the harvest of the fruits and the nuts, okay? So we can relate to that because in Fairhope, we have the whole fruit and nut district downtown, right? Some of you may live in that district. So we can relate to this. But this was the time that the fruits and the nuts were harvested, okay? This was a time where you would find, you know, we have pumpkins here. It was a very colorful time in Israel as well. Uh, things are changing colors. Very colorful, very festive. It was exciting. Uh, a lot of people wanted to go to this one because, number one, it was exciting, but the other thing was it was required that they come to Jerusalem. Anybody who lived, any male who lived within 15 miles of the temple had to come to Jerusalem for three feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Feast of Sukkot. Okay, those were the three pilgrimage uh, feasts. So they would come in whenever they were able to uh, from that 15, everybody outside of 15 miles would come whenever they could. Okay, but those who were within 15 miles of the, they literally had to come to Jerusalem for this celebration. Now, this was the one they really, 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 really looked forward to because there's all kinds of good food. You know, let's be honest, Passover, as, as spiritually deep as it is, the one thing you don't like about Passover is what? Unleavened bread. That's exactly right. You don't like eating bread without leaven, do you? You like those big, fat yeast rolls. You remember those? You just had a Quincy's. Y'all remember Quincy's? Yes. That was like, that was the best thing at Quincy's. You know, you couldn't, you didn't get anything but the big, fat yeast roll. And they put butter all over that thing. None of that at Pentecost. But at Feast of Sukkot, you can have that. You can have all that you want, okay? Because it's all about this picture of God's provision and God's goodness and the bounty of the harvest. So people came in huge numbers. It was beautiful. It was just like Mardi Gras here, except without all the drunkenness and the lewd behavior and the moon pies. Okay, it was nothing like Mardi Gras at all, but it was like a parade because they would literally parade through the streets of Jerusalem every single day. What would happen is all the people would come together and they would gather at the temple. Now, as they would gather to the temple, they would dress in their Sabbath best. They called it their season of gladness. And this was such a festive time that they just it made them think of things bigger than what was there at that time. In other words, they would think that surely God has something bigger in mind than what we're just celebrating here. Matter of fact, the prophet Zechariah said this. He said it was the symbol of our future with God. In Zechariah 14, he calls the Feast of Tabernacles the universal feast of tabernacles. Because at the heart of the celebration, there was this daily rite. And there's this rite that we have to understand really in order to catch the, the weightiness of John chapter 7. So rabbinical literature actually tells us that every morning, these great multitudes would come together to the temple mount and they would start right there and they would come with some citrus fruit in their left hand. And it was called an ethrog. Say that with me. Ethrog, okay? And then in their right hand, they would carry what are these branches right here? And the branches were actually called lulab, okay? Say that with me. Lulab, okay? So there was the ethrog and the lulab. Now, the ethrog was the citrus. The lulab was three different branches from three different trees bound together. And it was almost like um, a broom to a degree. I mean, they didn't use it as a broom, but it was like that long. It's kind of like that, that stiffness, or you could wave it and you would hear it. You know how you do a broom? It's like, whoosh, and you can hear it. That's what they would do with it. They would wave these and you could hear it going, whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. Okay, now think about this for a moment. Every morning, the people gathered together. After the priest was sure everyone was dressed to the nines, everyone looked perfect, everyone was in order, he would then hold up this golden pitcher. Okay, not, not pitcher, 
not pitcher, but pitcher. You got me? Okay, it's this golden pitcher that would hold like liquid. Then what, would he, what he would do is the crowds would follow the priest and he would march the several miles it would take to get to the pool of Siloam. And as they marched, they would chant their most favorite psalms, some of the grand psalms. And as they would chant these psalms, they would wave the lulabs and they would march and step in rhythm. Now, there are Jewish historians that tell us exactly what it was like because there were multitudes and multitudes and multitudes of people. They literally said that if you were at the Pool of Siloam when these people started, you would immediately, when they started their march, you would hear them because you would hear boom. And then you would hear them singing the psalms in unison. And he said it would just keep going and they would march for hours till they got to the pool of Siloam. And you could just hear it because they were all in rhythm and all in sync. And you would hear them waving those things. And as they got closer and closer to you, it would get louder and louder. They said if you were standing off to the side, there were so many people waving them that literally the air would hit you. When they waved those things, you feel a little bit like a semi-truck going down when you're changing flat tire on the side of the interstate. You ever been there? Okay, it feels like that. You just feel that, that breeze that hits you. That's what was going on in that moment. So as they approached the pool of Siloam, the priest would then, as everything got quiet, he would dip that golden pitcher down and he would get some water from the pool of Siloam. Now listen to this, okay? Because we already read the passage and the disciples said, hey, I mean, uh, Jesus' brother said, hey, come on up here, show everybody who you are, demonstrate your power. He says, my time hasn't come yet. I'm not coming up there yet. He ends up coming in the middle of the week, okay? Now they did this every single day. All right, listen to what they would say. They would literally read out of the book of Isaiah, chapter 12, verse three. This is what they would say. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One. Great in your midst is the Holy One. They had no idea this particular year that literally the Holy One was in their midst and they didn't even know it. The crowd would then march back to the temple, same way, making the same kind of noises, waving their etrong and their lulav. And they would go through the water gate and as they did, the, tr- the, the priest would blast the trumpets. The priest would then circle the altar, and the one priest that's carrying that golden pitcher, he would ascend to the bronze altar of sacrifice, and he would pour the water from the pool of Siloam onto the fires of the sacrifice. You know what it was symbolic of? So water was picture of the washing away of sins. The fires of the altar were a picture of the cost of our sins. Something had to die. And they believed one day in the future that the grace of God washing away the sins would one day mitigate the need for the fires of the altar. That one day God was going to take care of this. And he was going to do it when he sent his Messiah in their midst. Now it's going to be fascinating because 
as they did this every single day, as we get deeper into this passage, you're going to find that Jesus, on the very last day, which is the only day that they do it quietly and they do it reverently, and while he's beginning to pour the water, Jesus yells, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Man, you think that made them mad? But what he was saying is literally the fruition of everything that you're talking about, everything that you're celebrating is right here. I'm the one who can answer your thirst. I'm the one that can satisfy you. So if you don't understand the Feast of Tabernacles, you don't understand John chapter 7. Because not only that, what did we just talk about? He's the bread of life. What's he going to say a few weeks from now when we get to it? Um, I am the living water. What did God provide in the wilderness? Bread and water miraculously. Beautiful picture. Look at, continue verse three. Jesus' brothers said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. So Jesus' brothers here were egging him on. I want you to understand this. Number one, when we talk about his brothers, it doesn't necessarily mean it's literally his brothers, in other words, the children of Mary. It probably is, but it probably entails a bigger group than that because in that day and time, cousins were called brothers, nephews were called brothers. So this is a large group of people that probably were all related to him in some form or fashion, okay? These are people who are very close to him. They knew him. And they're saying this a little bit tongue in cheek. They've gotten to the point, but if you think about it, it makes sense where they're coming from because everything that Jesus has done is not something that he's done out in public in a way that you could just look and go, wow, that was amazing. Because even the feeding of the 5,000 was a miracle that happened slowly. It was breaking bread and passing it down and the bread just never ended. It wasn't like he had one piece of bread and he waved his wand like Harry Potter and said, poof, and all of a sudden there was just bread everywhere. It wasn't anything like that. It all happened slowly to the point that you had to think about it and wait and go, wait a minute, how did, how did we end up with 12 baskets? Well, we didn't even have anything really to start with. And then they were like, oh my goodness, he, he performed a miracle. Think about the official son. Hey, go home, your son as well. There's no proof of that, except when he got back there, then there was proof of that. But the whole crowds, none of them saw it. They've heard these stories, but no one has literally seen a lot of these things for themselves. They've heard stories that he's healed the blind. They've heard stories that the lame have walked, but not everyone has done it, seen it because Jesus was not a showman. He wasn't there to take care of all these physical needs. He was there to take care of spiritual needs. But here's the thing. We go back. What they wanted was a physical savior. Go show yourself in Judea. Go show them the power that you have. If you really have this power and you can do these things, why don't you go and prove it once and for all in this feast when they are expecting the Messiah to show up? Go show them who you are, big brother, if that's who you are. You see, what you begin to get the sense of is they're not believing. Matter of fact, the passage will tell us a little bit later on that they don't even believe anymore. No matter what Mary has told them, no matter what they have seen and experienced, they're beginning to think, you know what? I think this guy is a fraud. If he wasn't, he would show himself. He would take this opportunity. This was an attempt. Listen to me. This is nothing short of an attempt to either control or belittle him, 
to control him, to make him do what they wanted him to do. And if he wasn't going to do what they, were gonna, what they wanted him to do, they were going to belittle him. This is a lot, if you think about it, very similar to the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. What they're saying is, Jesus, we know what you want to do. So why don't you take the shortcut and just go show everybody how powerful you are, and then they'll all follow you. Do you remember what Satan said to Jesus when he was out in the wilderness and he had fasted for 40 days? He's like, why don't you just throw yourself off of this temple mount, and don't you know the angels will come and catch you, and then think about it, everybody's going to believe you. Everything you want will be yours if you just throw your... See, he was offering shortcut after shortcut after shortcut. It's the temptation that everyone kept throwing at him over and over again. See, we are a lot like the crowd. We are a lot like his brothers in the sense that we too have the temptation to be more interested in a physical savior than a spiritual savior. What I mean by that is if you listen to yourself pray, a lot of the things that you ask for in your prayers, you're asking him to take care of physical needs. And my challenge to you is this. If you really understand him, then your prayer life will grow to the point that you ask less and less for physical things and you ask more and more for spiritual things. Because you begin to buy into and believe that somehow what the Feast of Tabernacles is all about is true. That there's going to be a day when we live forever and ever and ever and ever. And there's no end to it in the presence of God. And those who don't exist in a place absent of him. A place of torture. And that's going to be our eternal existence. And if we start really believing that and embracing that, our prayers are not going to be about things here. Lord, I need this car. I need this relationship. I need to get into this school. I need to have this job. I need this. All of a sudden, our prayers take on a new level of understanding. And we begin to pray kingdom-type prayers because we have a kingdom-type belief in a kingdom-type God. His brothers were still thinking about the physical. Sometimes we do too. Think about this. I wrote this out. I want you to see this. Um, go to that next slide there. His family wants him to take up his power. Do you see that in the passage? They're like, you can do this. You've said you've done this. We've seen little bits and pieces of this. If you can do this, take up this power and show it. Demonstrate it for everybody. But look at what Jesus keeps doing. Go to the next one. Jesus sets aside his power to take up his family. Paul tells us that even though he was equal with God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself of his godness. In other words, his authority and his, his power to do whatever he wants to do because he's God. He emptied himself of his own agenda, and he became a servant, and he became obedient to death, even death on the cross, because when he died on the cross... Not only did he demonstrate his mastery over death, hell, and the grave, but he paved a path for you and I to become the children of God, for us to become brothers and sisters. You see, if he doesn't take that path of laying aside the power, we don't become a part of his family. They were like, take up your power. And he says, no, I'm going to lay aside my power so that I can grow the family. That's what I've come to do.
Look at verse five. Not even his brothers believed in him. They didn't even believe in him. I mean, his own earthly brothers failed to embrace him, failed to see him as savior. How, how pitiful, how tragic. I mean, first this passage starts off and the Jews want to kill Jesus. And now his own flesh and blood were urging him, go to the celebration and either show them the savior or take your medicine and let them kill you. We're tired of the show. And Jesus replies, and and his reply, I guarantee this is a key of understanding this whole passage because it really reveals the thoughts of Jesus. Look at what it says in verse six. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. There's something different between the way they think and the way he thinks, the way they see events and the way he sees events. Notice carefully the word Jesus used here for time. In the Greek, it's actually the word kaderos. Say that with me. Y'all are so good at this. The word here is translated into our English Bibles as time, but a a more literal translation is opportunity. Okay, so think about that. He says, literally, my opportunity has not yet come, but your opportunity is always here. So the opportune time had not yet come for Jesus, but it was coming. Verse 10 tells us that. But Jesus is not changing his mind as this passage develops. Because a lot of people look at it and go, well, Jesus changed his mind. It's like, I'm not going up there. And they're like, oh, I can't miss out on this. I gotta go see what it's all about. And he changes his mind, he goes up there anyway. He's not changing his mind. He was being intentional. He was saying that right there in that moment, his moment had not arrived. His opportunity had not arrived. He was waiting for that moment. He was waiting to be led by the spirit of God to go. Jesus was anticipating something very big. In fact, I really believe this. Go to the next slide. I literally believe that this is probably the most dramatic moments of all of Jesus' ministry aside from the cross. Chapter seven right here. This is what I believe. I believe that this is his most dramatic moment. Not walking on the water. I believe this moment. All of chapter seven, this is like the pinnacle. This is when he begins to talk to the crowd and reveal to everyone who he is and offers them an opportunity to trust and believe. The intensity is building. Can you taste the flavor of this passage? Look at verse seven. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. Opportunity is not there. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So they went on up. So we know that Jesus comes up later on in the week. Remember, Feast of Tabernacles is a seven-day feast. It's actually eight days. It actually goes on to nine days if you really count the beginning of the reading of Torah. So seven days is the feast. And then the very next day is a day. It's called Shemini Atzeret. I'm not going to make you say that with me because I don't know what you might say. All right? So Shemini Atzeret literally is the eighth day. Now, there is this um, 
story about how Shimei Atzeret came about. And it goes back to the time of Solomon when Solomon was king. And so again, uh, Feast of Tabernacles was a pilgrimage. So everybody would come in. So think about Solomon's kids were all over the kingdom. They were probably governors and ruling in different provinces and different city-state areas and all that kind of thing. So they would all come in for these pilgrimages. Well, when you come in for the Feast of Tabernacles, there is so much to do. I mean, there's booths everywhere. There's all this good food to eat. There's these parades every morning that you're a part of and you get to go see it. There's so much there. So when his kids came in, they were literally enamored with all that was happening and participating in it and asked to be involved in so much of it. And they say that there came this time when Solomon instituted an eighth day because he looked at his sons and said, you know, will you stay one more day with me before you go back? Will you stay one more day? Because I just, I really want it to be me and you. I want to, I want to know you. I want to spend, I want to hear what's going on in your life. And I just want to talk to you. I just want to be with you without all the distractions and all the things that are going on. I just want to be with you. So the eighth day is all about the intimacy between the father and the son. Beautiful, beautiful picture. Because the picture that we have there is that Jesus died so that you could spend time with God. Why? Because God wants to know you. He doesn't want you to just say, oh, I believe you're God, and then go back. He wants you to realize that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. He wants you to embrace the fact that you have God-sized goals for your life that you can never create for yourself. You can only get it from understanding him and why he created you and all the good and the bad that's happened to you in your life that somehow these two things are going to meet and you're going to find what he wants to do that's kingdom-sized through your life. But if you just keep looking for a physical savior, you're never going to see it. But if you understand there's something deeper, something spiritual, and the intimacy begins to grow between you and God, all of a sudden you spend time with the Father and he reveals to you exactly what he wants you to do. Verse 10. Well, before I go to verse 10, I want to talk about that word hate. If you are a good Jewish person and you hear the term hate in this context... This is a little pop quiz. You don't have to answer it out loud. Just think to yourself, answer it how you think you would. What, what do you immediately think of? What story do you think of when you think of hate? And there's several that you could go to, but think for a second. And I'm going to tell you if you're right or wrong because I think that you would go to the story of Jacob and Esau because there is this passage that says where God says, Jacob I've loved and Esau I have what? Hated. And we have a tough time with that passage, don't we? Because we're like, God, you know, you should word that differently because you, you, you're God, you can't hate anybody. And, and the truth is we don't understand the words love and hate from that context because I, without oversimplifying it, I hope that you understand where I'm going with this. Let me substitute another word. Uh, Jacob, I've chosen. Esau, I haven't chosen. I haven't, I haven't chosen to bring about my plans for salvation through Esau. I've chosen Jacob for that. Now, think about this in light of this passage. The world hates me. The world has not chosen me. The world will embrace you because you're like the world. They hate me. Now, why is that important? Why do I bring up that context? Because by the end of this whole story, Pilate puts up two people 
And they're both of them's names are Jesus. Did y'all know that? Both of them's names are Jesus. Jesus Barabbas and Jesus. That's why he says Jesus, the one called the Christ, because both of them's names are Jesus. And in essence, Pilate presents a question to the crowd. Which kind of Jesus do you want? And they hated Jesus Christ. They didn't choose him. The world hates me. Verse 10, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then also he went up, not publicly, but in private. So Jesus was very intentional about this. In other words, if he would have went with all his disciples, they would have immediately seen him. Everybody was looking for him. You're going to see it as the passage develops. But this way, he was able to go incognito. He was able to come in. No one really saw him. Maybe he had his prayer shawl pulled over. And because all the commotion was over there, no one was paying attention to him. So he was able to observe, to participate, to enjoy all these things and what it represented until he actually shows up later on. Oh, gee, I don't know what happened. I'm in darkness now. I must be preaching heresy somewhere. But anyway, I'm not, though. I promise you that. I don't promise that, but you always check what I'm saying. Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, what does it say? Oh, go to the next slide. The Jews were looking at him at the feast, and they were saying, where is he? Now, here's the thing. In Greek, that, that verb is continuous. That, that's the way it's been. So it's not like they all went up and said, where is he? I don't know. All right, well, let's just enjoy the feast. No, they were literally like, hey, where is he? Have you seen him? I saw his disciples. Have you seen, have you seen him? Have you seen him? Where is he? Where, I don't know where he's. Where, have you seen him? Have you, where's the disciples? They kept asking over and over again. They're looking for him, looking for him, looking for him. It's continuous. So continuous that they begin to stir up a buzz with everyone else because now they're looking for him. The whole crowd starts talking. Look at verse 12. And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So behind locked doors, these controversies were raging about who Jesus was and were his powers legitimate. And all these outside discussions carried on with all these very hushed tones because they were afraid if the religious leaders found out they were even entertaining the thought that he could be legitimate, they were going to feel the repercussions of that. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is going to show up in the middle of the week in the temple. Look down in verse 16 to see where we're going. He begins to teach in the temple and people are so enamored with his teaching that they walk away going, you know what, this guy is not learned. He didn't go through the rabbinical system. How does he know these things? How is he so eloquent in the way that he talks about the word of God? Where does his wisdom come from? And they ask him and he responds in verse 16, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. Again, this begins that moment of, oh no, here he goes again. He's been sent. And here's the thing as we wrap this up. This passage starts off with the Jews, general population, want to kill Jesus. And then it develops to his own brothers don't even believe him. Now, I want you to think about this because here here comes the flavor part of it. This comes where we need to do our reflection. I want to throw this question up at you. Go to the next slide. Do you expect Jesus to be the God you want or the God he is? In other words, do you think you've got Jesus all figured out? Does he fit inside your little theological bottle and you never let him out? 
You just rub it whenever you need something, three wishes, and then he comes out, answers them, and then go back to your theological bottle, Jesus. Do you allow Jesus to be who he is, or do you demand that he be the kind of savior that you want? You see, very easily, we can fall into the same trap that his brothers did. We can say, you know what, Jesus, here's what I need. And when Jesus doesn't deliver, when he doesn't offer that healing, when he doesn't offer that provision, when, when the relationship doesn't come through, when, when the job doesn't come through, and then all of a sudden we back off of our commitment because we're like, wait a minute, I don't, I don't know if I can trust you. If you're not going to answer my prayers, then, I mean, what? Why, why should I follow you? Maybe we don't say it out loud, but our actions show that's the thought process that we've gone through. And that shows that we've made the same kind of conclusion. You know what? If you're not going to be the kind of savior that I want, I'm not going to be the kind of follower you want. And thus, all we've done is created a pagan religion out of Christianity. Jesus goes to Jerusalem. He goes to the feast but he doesn't go for the same reasons that his brothers do. They're going there for selfish ambition. Jesus' desire is to embrace the feast and all that it stands for. My question for you is this, what about you? Why do you attend church? What are you here for today? What, what's your motivation for showing up today? I mean, what do you really believe about Jesus? Do you really think that he is what these scriptures say? And if so, how many times do you have to come here before you really embrace it? Well, let's do, man. I'm preaching myself as much as I'm preaching y'all. I mean, this is, this is hard reflection. I mean, are we just playing a game together or is there something deeper that we all can grasp? If you think about the passage here, John's being very specific about several things. Chapter 4, Galilee rejected him. Chapter 7, Judah rejected him. Chapter 5, religious leaders rejected him. Chapter 6, the crowd rejects him. Now his family rejects him. Eventually, by the end of this story, even his own disciples are going to scatter. It just demonstrates what John said in chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. Think about the common belief that we often embrace about Jesus and people who follow Jesus. We believe that those who are closer to Jesus would be stronger believers. But what this passage tells us is that that's not always true. We think that those who are in relational proximity to Jesus are going to be far more likely to believe in him than those who are at a distance. But what the Gospels have shown us is it's the Samaritan woman who believes. It's the official that works for Herod believes. But his own brothers don't believe. Which leaves me with the most powerful and important reflective question that I can give to you from this. Is at some point, your faith has to become your own. It can't be your parents. Some of you are here because you have lived in relational proximity to Jesus for a long time. But it's never become your faith. It's never become a belief that you've embraced. It's something that your grandpa 
did, something that your mom demonstrates. It's something that your dad showed you. And you believe, and you've gone through the motions, and you've showed up at church, and you've shown up at Sunday school. Maybe you even went to VBS as a kid, and you went to the front and took the Easter Bunny by the hand, and he led you through the happy hops to heaven, and you got baptized, and you did all those things, and, and you hold those things and go, that, that's me, that's, that's who I, I believe. But there's never been the development of a relationship between you and the Almighty. You've never heard the longing of his heart to say, stay a little longer because I want to know you and I want you to know me because there's so much more to your life than you're experiencing. But you keep getting enamored by all these physical things around you that aren't going to fulfill you. Is your faith really your own faith? Or is it one you're borrowing from someone else? If it is, I just want to challenge you. That faith isn't real. It's not real until you embrace it, until you walk out of that shadow, until you walk away and you say, I believe no matter what happens in my life. You know, for some of you younger adults here, it may be the fact that you're trying to figure out what you're going to do with your life, and here you have this degree that you've spent thousands of dollars on. You know what real faith is? It says, you know what, Lord, here's what I want to do with my life, but I trust you. And if you tell me to go somewhere completely different that pays me nothing, Lord, my life is yours because I really believe that you're the Savior, that you're all wise. The illegitimate faith is one that says, God, here's what I've earned. Sprinkle your fairy dust on it and make it grow and make it do something nice and get me the job that I want. That's not faith. That believes that you know better than God does. Question, is your faith legitimate? Let's pray together.